Okay. Well, good evening, guys. Hope you're doing well. Um, we're going to do something slightly different tonight, in that with 25 minutes left, I'm just going to kind of do more of a teaching thing based out on the passage that we're looking at. I've invited Anna, who's going to come along and read it for us. So, Anna, why don't you come up, and Anna's going to read just our passage this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 1, and we're looking at the second half of Acts chapter 1. Paul covered it last week. Uh, if you missed out on last week or if you're new here today, you can always go to our website and catch up with the blog and the Life app and the preachers there. That would be great for you, a good resource for you to use. Uh, and if you haven't got your Bible with you today, then uh, the uh, passages will come up behind us as well. Okay, Anna. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Fantastic. Thanks, Anna. So just to give a context to what is happening here, Jesus, uh, who is God with skin on, has already arrived on earth. He's spent a number of years with his disciples, with his chosen people, with his collective few, if you like. And then what's happened is that one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And in selling Jesus out, it leads to his capture, it leads to his persecution, ultimately it leads to his death, which leads to guilt and confusion for his followers. And actually Judas... Uh, suffers such guilt, he tries to give the money back. In fact, he hangs himself, he commits suicide. And in this uh, moment in Scripture, we see this poignant moment where there's two people dying on a tree. You've got Judas, who hangs himself because of his guilt and his shame. And you also have Jesus, whose punishment on a tree is to rid all of humanity of their guilt and their shame. It's a wonderful moment. 
And then three days later, Jesus rises again from the dead. That's good news. Yeah? Three days later, Jesus rises victoriously again from the dead. And he spends a prolonged period of time again with his followers. Uh, At one point in 1 Corinthians, I think it is, we hear that Jesus even uh, came across hundreds of people at one time, followers. So there's lots of followers at this point of Jesus Christ. And then uh, last week, Paul spoke to us about how Jesus ascended then on the Mount of um, Olivet or the Mount of Olives. And that's where we're picking up now. All right. So we're going to do in these 20 minutes. I want to kind of outline to you, if you like, what I think is quite a good Bible study. All right. I don't know if, if you felt it, but when I first read that scripture, I thought for the inspired word of God, it wasn't hugely inspiring, if I'm honest. In fact, a friend of mine last week, I said, I don't even really know why this is in the Bible. And he said, God's put it in there for a reason. You just need to work a bit harder to find out what it is. And he was dead right, because I think there's a lot of detail here. And I do want to talk about the detail. I want to do what we call kind of exegetical preaching. I want to really go through verse by verse. I want you to know exactly what it was that Luke wanted to communicate with his contemporaries. But then I want to get beneath the surface a little bit. I want to almost kind of look at the whole canvas. And I say, why is it even important for us today? Because I think there's something much more important. I think there's so much, something going on in this passage, which is a lot more than just detail. It's a lot more than just keeping up personnel records. I think it's something which is real significance for us and about courageous living, actually, as Christians. All right? So that's what we're going to do. So let's pick it up. So verse 12. So Jesus is ascended, and Jesus instructed uh, the, uh, the believers that were there at the time uh, to go to uh, Jerusalem. So it says in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So the Mount of Olivet, as I said, is Mount of Olives. Uh, there's actually a picture that will come up behind me. Uh, and you can go there today, all right? So you can go to the Mount of Olives today. Um, and although we call it a Mount of Olives, and it is quite high above sea level, actually it's not like a Mount Everest, all right? It's like a really large hill, okay? And all of that white stuff there is actually 150,000 tombstones and growing, okay? It's a place of pilgrimage for Christians and Jews and the like. And at some point, at somewhere on this mount, Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, we don't know exactly where, but what we do know is that it was a Sabbath day journey away. Now, when, when Luke says a Sabbath day journey, it doesn't mean that it necessarily took place on a Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. What it meant was that for, in rabbinical law, for the rabbis, they said that on a Sabbath, you're not allowed to walk more than 2,000 cubits on a Sunday or a Saturday, so on a, on a Sabbath which is basically about 1.2 kilometers. So in other words, what Luke is saying in this first verse is, after a short walk, we left Mount of Olives and we ended up in Jerusalem and we ended up back in the upper room, okay? Now the upper room, <coughs> uh, so the upper room, we don't, it doesn't describe where it is, but the assumption is that it's known, known by the believers, it's known by the readers at the time. And it's probably the same place, if I'm honest, that Jesus had the Last Supper. It's probably uh, the same place where lots of believers gathered uh, regularly all the time. It's almost like me saying, after the meeting, we're going to go back to Brian's house. For some of you, you'd have absolutely no idea what I mean. You'd think it's a bit of an in thing. But for some of you, you know exactly what I mean. And I think that's probably what's happening here. When Luke is saying we went to the upper room, the readers, the Theophilus, and other people at the time would have known exactly where that was. All right? So he hasn't had to describe it. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So if you're counting, that's 11 men. All right, That's 11 disciples that spent time with Jesus. That's 11 apostles of the early church. And it says this, all of these, in verse 14, all of these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer 
together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. There's a lovely phrase here, with one accord. There's something about one accord. There's something about prayer and unity, that they prayed with one accord. It speaks of real unity. And from the very start of the early church, before even the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, Luke wants to communicate something about the unity in the church. Can I just encourage you, it is really important to have unity in the church. It's incredibly important for you to have unity with your brothers and sisters. And although it's not necessarily explicit in this verse, I think Luke's given us a very good recipe for unity, and that's prayer. A number of years ago, someone did something that really upset me. And I resented this person for a couple of years. And then after, after a couple of years, a good friend of mine challenged me. He had the guts to say, have you ever considered praying God's best for them? And after a season, I, I, I did that. And it's amazing how actually praying your best, praying God's best for someone can bring unity back. And actually, I found as well that if you're feeling distant from church life, nothing brings you back into church life in corporate prayer times. If you're feeling distant, I wouldn't be surprised if you were to look at your diary, how, how often are you getting to corporate prayer time? It's an, an amazing way of you getting in with your brothers and sisters and getting unity in prayer. And that is exactly what's happening here. Okay? They were, in fact, he uses the word, they were devoted to prayer. It wasn't that it was just on John's agenda or just on Sam's agenda or just on Shell's agenda. It was... It was their agenda. They were devoted to prayer. They prioritized it above everything else. Let me just quickly read you a quote from Oswald Chambers on this point. He says, We tend often to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. He said, Most of us often would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that would get immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good timing is seldom in sync with ours. And it's so true. Often I so just want to get on with doing something. And you can imagine with the apostles, Jesus, it's so easy for them to think, well, let's just go and do something, when the reality is they knew what was important, which was, no, we need to seek God in prayer and we need to be devoted in prayer. So that's what they're doing in this upper room at this point. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So he's talking about King David in the Old Testament, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. So we know that there's roughly uh, 10 days, I'd say, between uh, Jesus ascending into heaven and Pentecost coming. And at some point in those 10 days, Jesus stands up and he now starts talking to what is now 120, uh, roughly 120 people in this upper room. Okay? And it's interesting what he said. Peter validates what's about to happen, what we're about to read. Peter validates it by saying that in Scripture... God has spoken, and therefore this is going to come about. In fact, it already has come about. So what he says is what the Holy Spirit says will come about. Now, we need to know that when God speaks, his words are never come back voids. Now, what's interesting is for Peter, he's, he's saying about a scripture which was uh, declared by David over a thousand years before this moment. Now, let me tell you, there are lots and lots of promises in the Bible for us. Not a single one of those will come back void 
or empty. And as in this case, it may take a thousand years, but God's promises will always be true. God's promises for you will always be true. There is not one that will fail. There is not one that will come back empty. So it doesn't come as a surprise to God. And there's no shock in the Godhead when Judas betrays Jesus. So what Peter says is that it was, it was said a thousand years ago that this was going to happen, that Judas was going to betray Jesus. All right? It's not a shock in the Godhead. In fact, God ordains it, God plans it, God facilitates it, God uses it for his glory. All right? So it's spoken even... Actually, Jesus, if you go to uh, John, Jesus knows that Judas is the one that's going to betray him at the very, very beginning. He knows at the very, very beginning. All right? So it's not a shock to God. So what Peter's just said here, the brothers of Scripture had to be fulfilled. That means that God knew that it was going to happen. Nothing has surprised God. But also it means actually when God says that something's going to come true, it will come true. And it might not be instantaneous, but it will always be in God's timing, and it will always be just, and it will always be true. God is always faithful. Verse 18. Now this man acquired... Now let me just say, this. Peter isn't saying this to the guys that are there because everyone in Jerusalem knows what's happened to, Ju- um, to Judas. All right, But this is in here for our benefit. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the, re- with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Such graphic detail there about Judas and his end. The thing that I pick out there is that the devil's sole intention is desolation and, and death and humiliation. And every sin is always sugar-coated with 30 pieces of silver. We need to know that. We need to know that every single sin is always sugar-coated with 30 pieces of silver. But the devil's intention is always desolation, it's always humiliation, and ultimately it's always death. It may, it may appear as something which is attractive, it may appear as something which is worthwhile, but ultimately, whilst, whilst the, the, the heaven of... Um, so the language of heaven is Jesus. The language of Satan is just lies and deceit. He cannot speak anything else. So every sin, and in Judas's case, it leads to absolute humiliation. Everyone in Jerusalem knows about his untimely end. So it speaks here of something of, actually, Satan is just out. He's just completely, completely, <coughs> sorry, his complete intention is death and humiliation. Peter follows one prophetic statement here with another, linking Psalm 69 to Judas, and then he says, verse 20, let another take his office. And he goes on to outline some criteria that Judas's replacement would need to cover. Okay, So he says in verse 21, so one of the men, so interestingly he says it's a man, all right, it can't be a woman. Now there would have been women that would have been from Jesus at the beginning. There would have been women that would have seen him risen again. But he makes it, the first criteria here is that it needs to be a man who has accompanied, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they should have seen the life of Jesus from the very beginning, from when he was baptized by John, and they must have seen him in a resurrected state. They must have seen him after his resurrection to testify that Jesus is risen again. 
All right? So they've narrowed it down because verse 23, they, they basically get two guys. All right? Now, there may have been more than that, but they basically say, there's two guys that fulfill the criteria and we feel would be good at replacing Judas. And that's Joseph, called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. Okay? So they've narrowed it down to two men, but only one man can replace Judas and become the new 12th apostle. So verse 24, we see, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, that's interesting, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And so he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Hey, guys, I've got a great idea. I know we've narrowed it down to two guys, but why don't we just toss a coin? That's literally the, the modern equivalent of what's going on here. And when I first read it, I just think, man, this just seems pretty crazy. It seems a bit of a, a weird way of doing it. But actually, the more I've read into it, it's, it's actually quite normal. It's normal culturally, actually. Uh, so you'll even find, uh, you know when Jesus gets crucified, there's that account where they say the Roman soldiers drew lots for his clothes. So that's a cultural thing. But actually, there's a biblical precedent as well. Uh, you actually read about drawing lots 70 times in the Old Testament. And actually, God ordains it. God actually says to, uh, to uh, Moses at the beginning, when he says, actually, that's going to be the way that we're going to divide all the land up is by a lot. Okay, so this is one of God's plans. And so what they're doing here, although it may seem crazy to us, is actually an act of faith and obedience. And they pray to God, and they pray that God's sovereignty would be outworked for Judas's replacement through the casting of lots. All right? So it's not all that crazy. It's actually something that would have been regular and normal for them to do. Now, saying that is the last time that this is seen because now we have the Holy Spirit and now we have different gifts and different ways of doing that. But I just want to communicate that. It's not a crazy thing. They, didn't, they believed in the sovereignty of God. All right? And this was a faith step for them. Now, what's really interesting is Peter's prayer because there's something that, just quickly reading through, you may have missed it, but something he said was that... Um, <coughs> He said, Lord, you who know the hearts of all. I don't know about you, but for me, if I want to try and find a replacement for Judas, I'll probably think about the talent. I'll probably think about the gifting. I'll probably look at the track record. I'll probably have a look. Can you send us your CVs? Because we'd like to know what track record you've got. It's It's interesting that Peter's criteria for this prayer is, Lord, you know the heart. You know the hearts of these guys. You know, you can serve in church and you can go to church every week and miss relationship with God. And there's lots of things that we can do on the outside which may look really amazing, but ultimately God is interested in the heart. And Peter knows that. And his prayer is, Lord, you know the heart of these guys and you choose which one is to be Judas' replacement. Because Christianity, it's a heart condition. It's not a talent audition. (laughs) All right? When you finish life and when you go before God, he's not going to be looking at your CV and thinking, man, you've really clocked up some impressive things. It's not what he's going to be interested in. He's going to be looking at the heart and he's going to be looking at the investment in time that you've built in building relationship with him. And that's what's most important. All right? And that therefore becomes the focus of their prayers. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, and the lot falls on Matthias. When I first read that, to be honest with you, my first response was Paul Joseph. And I was probably thinking, I know there's probably a number of people in here actually that think, man, I've, I feel like a Joseph. I feel that there's my opportunity and it's gone. 
I wasn't part of the original 12. Oh, maybe this is my opportunity. Judas is out of the picture. Maybe I could take it. Oh, no, it's another person. But You know, it's interesting that Joseph, actually, if you read your Bible, if you know your Bible, Barsabas, jo- Joseph is used in other ways. And God got, God's got plans for him as well. So it's not that, that God has overlooked Joseph. But God has a plan for Joseph. And God also has a plan for Matthias. And God has got a plan for each and every one of us. Amen? So that is detail. That is looking intricately, if, if you like, a Bible study. That's one half of a good Bible study, I think, which is to look at the detail and just, just break down the verse. What is it that Luke is communicating to uh, the, the believers at the time, or Theophilus, the guy that he's writing to? But then I believe it's sometimes really helpful to just take a step back and to look at the whole picture, have a look at the whole canvas, because I think this is taking place. What we're reading here in Acts 1 is taking place at a point in God's big story which is really significant for us today. And there is, a, there is a possibility that we can go on going through this Acts series. We can go through Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4. We can go through the Pentecost. We can look at all these courageous people and miss something that's happening here in Acts 1 which is that each and every one of us can be partakers in Pentecost because of something that's happened. There is something of a transition from Old Covenant, Old Testament to New Testament here, which is really important for us to understand. And I think this is kind of, so close um, angle lens off, wide angle lens on, we see something of the wider picture going on here that's really important. Luke's trying to communicate something far greater than just detail or just by personal personnel records, all right, and things like that. It's far greater than that. And I started by just asking the question, why 12? Why, why 12 disciples? Why was it even important to replace Judas? Why 12 apostles? And I think it's a turning of a new page, a new chapter in God's big story. Another step up, if you like, in God's redeeming plan for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Okay? There's a handing over of the baton, from you like, from the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament to the 12 apostles and the new church. It doesn't negate what's going on in the past because those are the foundations to what God has done in building up and what we are today. It's amazing. It's just an expansion of God's kingdom, what he's got in his promises. Santino, two weeks ago, spoke about how God's intention was always to uh, habitate with his people, not visit. All right? It wasn't uh, a visitation, but it was a habitation that God always had in mind. He always wanted to tabernacle, which means to dwell with his people. All right? That's always been God's intention. And what starts as I promised to just one man, a guy called Abraham. One man called Abraham. He forms a covenant with him. In Genesis 17, it says, For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, that's important. A multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. This seemingly weak and uninspiring individual, if I'm honest, with no children to his name. He makes lots of mistakes, but he receives a promise that he grabs hold with both hands, with faith. But realize that from the very beginning, God's promise of blessing is not just to Abraham. It's not just to Abraham, but it was for a multitude of nations. Did you see that? From the very beginning, his promise is not just to Abraham. It's for a a multitude of nations. And then what happens, he gets passed down from Abraham, gets uh, passed down to the 12 tribes of Israel, to Israel the nation, and God sets apart a nation from himself. In Exodus 19, he says, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, from the very beginning, God's intention has not just been Abraham. It's not just been the 12 tribes of Israel. It's been every human. It's been every tribe, every tongue. God wants to redeem humanity to himself. That is God's big picture. And we come at a turning point where Jesus has arrived and suddenly the doors have been blown wide open. I want you to understand that there was once a time where you would not have been acceptable before God. There would have been a time where you would not have been in the people of God. You would not have been an acceptable sacrifice to God had it not been for the blood of Jesus Christ. Had it not been for Jesus. God's promises were to set apart a people and they still are, only the gates are now far wider. And there's something that's happened here which means that we are now involved. John 3.16, when Jesus arrives, he doesn't negate the past. He says, all of that is leading to me. But he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, not whatever Israelite, not whatever Abraham, whoever, there is no one in this room that is exempt from that promise. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are able to come into God's kingdom. You are able to come into his people. You are able to be a people that is blessed by God. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful news. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You know what? When God made the promise to Abraham that he would have offspring as much as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, you know he had you in mind. He had you in mind. Ephesians 2.11 Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You were once strangers to a promise. It was once foreign to you, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know what? It's, not just, it's, it's built... It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's saying all of the story up to this point, all of the story up to this point is pointing to Jesus, and it's always been about you. It's always been about you. My promises has always been about you. I've always had you in mind. And what starts as a small promise, what appears a small promise to one guy, grows and it grows and it grows. But it's always been God's intention to save humanity. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. What starts as a promise to one man now finds its conclusion through Jesus to all who calls on the name of the Lord. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You know, the promises of Abraham are now your promises. That's good news. And I know inside you're thinking, what? God's promises to Abraham are your promises. Your inheritance is Abraham's inheritance. I just want to show you an illustration. In fact, if we just put that photo up, it should be a photo. This is uh, part of the mouth of the river Amazon. All right, so there should be a picture there. This is just part of the mouth of the river Amazon. All right, let me just give you some facts about the river Amazon. All right, just bear with me because this will you'll come obvious. All right, by the time I finish. 
The Amazon River is one of the most biodiverse places on Earth and is home to a number of freshwater species, including over 3,000 different fish. Its length is over 4,000 miles. During the monsoons, the width of the Amazon River can reach over 120 miles. With over 1,100 tributaries, it comes as little wonder that the Amazon is called the River Sea. It is so large that the river and its tributaries contain 20% of the planet's fresh water. 20% of the planet's fresh water supply. The river drains over 7,381,000 cubic foot of water in the Atlantic Ocean every second. This causes, now this is amazing, this causes the surrounding 100 miles of the Atlantic Ocean around the Amazon Basin to be almost completely salt-free. So such is the extent of water that is being pushed through the Amazon, it pushes the salt water back in the Atlantic Ocean over 100 miles. It's amazing. Now let me show you another picture. Let me show you another picture. So this is the Aparamic River, and it's in the mountains of Peru. It's relatively small. It's seemingly unpowerful, and it's hardly known to the general public. The truth is scientists regard this as the most likely primary source of the River Amazon. It's amazing that what starts off as a small stream in the heights of a mountain range can gain momentum and end up as one of the most powerful forces of nature known to man. It's amazing that a promise of an inheritance passed down through Abraham, a frail old man, unable to have kids, will result in a river so vast and so wide, a torrent so powerful, that it will have an impact and be a blessing to all who encounter it. You want to know how you can be a courageous Christian? Because you are part of God's people now because of what happens here. There's a transition from 12 tribes to just Israel, God's promises on just one nation. The door has now been blown wide open, and now it says that through the 12 apostles, through his church advancing, now everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And those promises are for you. There's something about the kingdom. What happens is God's people in God's place, under God's rule and God's blessing. Let me tell you, that's the same for Abraham. Is the same for Israel, and it's the same for you. You are now God's child. You carry God with you wherever you go. And you carry his rule and his blessing in every situation you find yourself. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm just going to finish us in prayer. Is that all right? You know, you could be courageous because you have God living inside you. Because every promise found in the Bible is now for you. It's good news. Why don't you stand? Let's stand. Let's pray. Sam, do you want to finish off in prayer? Or do you want me to do it? I'll do it. Lord, I want to thank you that from the beginning of time, your eyes were set on us. Lord, thank you that even when you put your promise on Abraham and said, you, I choose you. You said, I choose you and a multitude of nations. <laughs> Thank you that you've always had in mind a, 
every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, I want to thank you for Acts 1. Lord, uh, at first glance, an uninspiring scripture. (laughs) Yeah, you look beyond the detail and you say, wow, what a transition. What a a wide open door there is now to the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And each and every one of us can be a part of that. Lord, I want to thank you that we are your people. I want to thank you that Courageous Living starts here because we are called sons and daughters of the living God. And we are here at such a time as this. We are here in your place to be your extension of your blessing in all of Hastings and the surrounding area and everywhere we find ourselves. Lord, help us to be courageous. Lord, help us to understand the truth of who we are. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a child of God. Look at the person next to you and say, God's promises for Abraham are God's promises for you. Look at the person next to you and say, come with me to the bar, I'm going to buy you a drink. God bless you. We're going to finish the meeting there. If you want to pray, we'd love to pray with you. Bar's open. If you're a visitor, Sam would love to buy you a drink, and that's a serious offer. He would love to buy you a drink if this is your first time here. Have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next week. All right, God bless.